We turn this morning to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. Hebrews, chapter 8. We have been in the book of Hebrews since the end of January, January 30, by my reckoning. So it has been uh, all of February, March, two months. And we will, um, perhaps, at this stage I can say, be taking a break, one little break, a mini break, next Lord's Day. Right? Just to catch the preacher's breath. Uh, that becomes necessary from time to time, you know, going through. The book is um, quite involved in its argumentation and requires real, real close, close study. And uh, doing that for these weeks, um, I think I need a little breather. And, you know, we can all benefit in that way. So this morning, Hebrews chapter 8 Hebrews chapter 8, and we're going to be reading verses 1 to the end. Verse 1 to the end. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt." For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish 
away. In previous chapters of the book of Hebrews, the predominant focus of the writer was the superiority of Christ, the superiority of Christ. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, Christ's superiority to the prophets. In chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, his superiority to angels. That is superior to Moses, we saw in chapter 3. And as we saw last week, his superiority to the Levitical priests is highlighted in chapter 7. And with chapter 8 comes a new aspect of Christ's superiority. That is his superiority as regards the covenant over which he administrates as high priest. Beginning here in verse 1, the writer states in summary fashion the point he had been making in the preceding chapters regarding his opening declaration in chapter 1 and verse 3. You'll recall in chapter 1 and verse 3, he had said of Christ that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. His extensive discussion from that point on all the way to the end of chapter 7 leads then to the statement we have here in chapter 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. If we examine the declaration he makes there, he says there, we have such a high priest. The tense in the Greek is continuous, it's present continuous tense. So the idea here, the literal idea here is this, we are having such a high priest. In other words, such a high priest is always available to us. And that phrase, such a high priest, which is also found in chapter 7 and verse 26, highlights for us the impressive distinctiveness of Christ as high priest. All the many wonderful qualities and accomplishments that distinguish the priesthood of Christ. And the question is, what were some of these qualities, accomplishments, to which the writer had called attention? Well, if you go back to chapter 2 and verse 17, we saw how that is a priest who shares our humanity such that he is for us a merciful and faithful high priest, a high priest who makes atonement for sins. In chapter 2, verse 18, he is a priest who affords us help and solace in our needs, in our various trials, temptations, sufferings, having himself been through such experiences. Chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, he is a high priest who is sympathetic to our infirmities, on account of which quality we can draw near to him in confidence, expecting to receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Chapter 5, verse 5, he is a high priest who is at the same time the divine Son of God. Chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, having an eternal priesthood, he is a priest who is 
the source of eternal salvation. In fact, when we're in that passage, we saw that the word he uses there for source is the word from which we get our English word etiology. It's a word that's used in the medical profession. They talk about the etiology of this particular sickness. In other words, the cause or source of this illness. And what the writer is saying here is that Jesus is the etiology. He is the, co- the cause, the source of our salvation. And then in chapter 7, which we studied last week, his is a priesthood that supersedes in every way the Levitical priesthood. Unlike the Levitical priest, he's a priest who has been designated as such by sworn, sworn divine oath, verses 20 and 21. He's a priest who is untouched by the defilement of sin, such that he has no need to offer sacrifice for himself. He's a priest who is not subject to death inasmuch as he lives forever. Then he's a priest who can completely and to the very end save us from eternal ruin. Such a high priest we have, the writer is saying to us here in verse 1. And beloved, concerning the many needs and challenges we face day after day in which we are bombarded in our Christian walk, needs and challenges as they relate to trials and temptations, needs as they relate to the infirmities of our flesh, this is by all accounts one of the most assuring, comforting truths we have as believers in Christ. Now, suggested here in verse 1 is that for the right of the Hebrews, the ultimate, this definitive, distinctiveness of Christ as high priest is the fact of his having been seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. This was an accomplishment that was above and beyond anything that any human priest could accomplish. In accord with the triumphant cry of our Lord Jesus from the cross, it is finished, John chapter 19 and verse 30, such accomplishment, his sitting at the right hand of God, having made purification for sins, speaks of the finality, it speaks of the sufficiency of his priestly atoning work. According to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11, 12, and 14, the Levitical priest, we are told, stood daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which could never take away sins. And listen to what the writer says there in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12. He says this, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Such a high priest you and I have, beloved. And that it has taken his seat at the right hand of majesty. And by the way, that is an allusion to the high and holy God of heaven. It's a reverential allusion to God. It denotes here the fact that he took his seat at the right hand of the majesty in heaven speaks of his exaltation. It speaks of the fact that he has been promoted, he has been exalted to a place of glory and honor and power. Christ taking his seat at the right hand of God signifies in addition that in addition to being a priest, he is at the same time a king. We could say then that he is a kingly priest. 
Remember Melchizedek, he was both priest and king. Well, our Lord Jesus, standing in the tradition of Melchizedek, is at once priest and king. And above Melchizedek, he is the divine king. Christ, the author is saying, is vastly different from the Levitical priest in that whereas they serve in an earthly tabernacle and could only enter the most holy place of that earthly tabernacle, but once per year, he, as the divine Lord, as the exalted high priest, sits constantly and permanently at the right hand of God, ministering for us there in heaven, the holy dwelling place of God. As verse 2 puts it, he is a minister. Here's what the word of God says. He's a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. By contrast, the Levitical priests, they serve in what the writer calls a shadow or copy of the real thing. We read in verse 5 how that, that tabernacle served as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything in accordance to the pattern that was shown you on the mount. And what the writer is saying then in verses 2 through 5 is that this tabernacle in heaven where Lord Jesus ministers as priest, this tabernacle is the real deal. Hence, he's a priest, he's a priest his priestly ministry bears the stamp of absolute perfection. He's not a priest on earth. In fact, the word of God says if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Now, many commentators explain why he could not be a priest on earth by saying, well, he was from the tribe of Levi. And that is true because we learned of that in our last study. But I think contextually, what he's saying here or suggesting here when he says if he were a priest, he could not be, if he were on earth, he could not be a priest what he's suggesting is this, that Christ's essential ministry is in the heavenly tabernacle. And for him to be, a tr to be truly a priest there in the heavenly tabernacle, he could not be functioning in a tabernacle which was patterned according to the law. What with all its imperfections, what with all its limitations, his priesthood being superior, his priesthood being uh, of a heavenly order, has to be in heaven and not on earth. In verse 3, the writer takes his readers back to school. Back to basics, so to speak. There in verse 3, notice he reiterates the point he had made in chapter 5, verse 1, regarding the function of a priest, which is that a high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. And the writer here clearly has good teaching techniques because one of the skills, one of the useful skills, one of the useful tools of a good teacher of the word of God is that of repetition. You've heard me say that time and again, repetition, repetition, repetition. It is that of reiterating, of restating truths, truths which are familiar to the hearers, which truths, however, could easily be overlooked. Why? Because of their 
or, or familiarity with them. The writer found it necessary to once again define the function of a priest. Why? Because as we've been seeing in past studies, his readers were having misgivings about the reality, the legitimacy of Christ being a high priest, let alone the surpassingly great high priest he is. They wanted to go back to the temple. They wanted to go back to the old priesthood. And he's setting up an argument here to say, look, Christ is the bona fide, real deal, high priest. Why? Because his ministry is not a ministry that is located on earth. It is not confined to the earth. It is not according to the law, which could not make anything perfect. His is a heavenly priesthood where he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so based on the fact that every high priest offers gifts and sacrifices, here's what the writer then does. He argues from this point that Christ necessarily has something to offer. And what is that something? We know what it is. From Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26, it is the sacrifice of himself. What Christ did on the cross, the Bible tells us how that by one offering, he offered up himself without spot to God. When he offered up that offering, when he made that sacrifice there on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. In other words, man's redemption has been fully met, has been fully paid for, has been has satisfied the justice of a holy God. My friends, we have such a high priest. And so from his arguments in verses 1 through 5, the author of Hebrews then draws the conclusion in verse 6, namely, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. He's saying here that this covenant is distinctly, markedly different from the old covenant, which was according to the law. Previously, we learned in chapter 7, verse 22, that he is the guarantor of a better covenant, one that ushers in, according to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19, a better hope. It's a better covenant. And in developing his argument concerning this better covenant, which our Lord mediates as high priest, the writer points out, on the one hand, the fault of the old covenant, verses 7 through 9, and on the other hand, the features of the new covenant, verses 10 through 13. So it is to this new covenant that we now turn our attention. We begin by looking at what he describes as the fault with the old covenant, verses 7 through 9, beginning at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, that is the Mosaic Covenant, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. 
Very much in line with the teaching of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 and verse 12 that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verses 8 and 9 of our text clarifies the respect in which the old covenant had a fault. And what the writer is suggesting here in his follow-up statement in verse 8 is that the fault with the new covenant was not due essentially to some inherent flaw within it. The problem was with the people, ancient Israel with whom God had made covenant. We read in verses 8 and 9, for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Question is, why did they not continue in God's covenant? As we said earlier, it certainly wasn't because there was some inherent flaw with it. It wasn't because there was some unreasonable demand in the covenant. The reason they did not continue in God's covenant was simply this, because theirs was a problem of the heart. Psalm 78, quite a lengthy psalm, gives us some insight into the matter of their not continuing in covenant with the Lord. Verse 8 of Psalm 78 tells us that they were stubborn and rebellious, as a generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Verses 10 and 11 of that same psalm says this, They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. Verse 11, they forgot his covenant and the wonders he had shown them. They were rebellious, they were hard-hearted. Paul says the commandment is good, the law is good. But evil dwells within me. That's what the writer is saying. The writer is saying, when he says that he finds fault with the covenant, the, co the problem was not so much that the, the, the problem was not so much that the covenant had flaws, as it was that the people who attempted to keep the covenant were flawed. Verses 17 and 18 of Psalm 78 state that notwithstanding all the mighty work the Lord had done before them. Here's what verse 17 says. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. Verse 18, they tested God in their hearts, demanding the food they crave. Verse 19, they spoke against God. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Verse 22, they did not believe in God. And did not trust his saving power. That was what obtained under law. That was what obtained under Mosaic Covenant. 
And then all the way down in verse 37, we read, Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. This takes us all the way back to Hebrews chapter 3, where we had started at the end of January, remember? And the writer dwelt at length on their rebellion, their hard-heartedness, their unbelief, on account of which they were denied entry into God's rest. The writer is quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And one line there has God saying, listen, I no longer cared for them. And we see the consequence of that because we see the history of ancient Israel. As we read the prophets, as we read the historical books, how progressively they became worse and worse and worse. Until... The last thing that was left for God to do was to send them into captivity. It's an awful thing when God gives up an individual or a nation for that matter. So the point is because of their sinful, rebellious proclivity, and hence their inability to continue in the covenant, the old covenant was therefore reckoned as having been, not being without fault. Again, not that the law was essentially and inherently weak, but that as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 verse 3, the law was weakened by the flesh. Under the old covenant, all the law could do, according to Romans chapter 7, verse 5, was to arouse sinful passions. Paul says, I didn't know what it is to covet until the law said, you shall not covet. He says, is the law evil? No. He says, but sin, taking occasion by the law, deceived me, it slew me. The law, as we said last week, never saves anyone the law never saves anyone. The law does not save us from being robbed. It tells us that we are being robbed. And what the writer of Hebrews is therefore arguing in verses 7 through 9, beloved, is that the limitations and deficiencies that obtained under the first Mosaic Covenant necessitated not simply a restatement or renewal of the Mosaic Covenant, as one man puts it, but the establishment of an altogether brand new covenant. And that new covenant, our text is saying, is administrated by our high priest, our kingly high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's consider now the features of this new covenant. The features of this new covenant administered by Christ, our high priest. All the features of this new covenant are in fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 1, 31, verses 31 through 34, as we said. And as we study verses 10 through 13, we notice there, that there are at least three features of this new covenant. First of all, the first feature of this new covenant is, we could put it like this, instilled obedience to God. Instill obedience to God. Verse 10, notice the first four lines. For this is the commandment that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. 
For us to appreciate this matter of God putting his law into the minds and hearts of men, writing them on their hearts, putting them in their minds, writing them on their hearts, we have to go back to Exodus 32, where Moses is said to have received the law from God on Mount Sinai. Verses 15 and 16 of Exodus 32 summarize the event as follows. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. Verse 16, here it comes. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on tablets. And with reference to that event, that particular event, the point being made here, beloved, is this, that whereas under the old covenant, God wrote his law on tablets of stone, under the new covenant that's administered by the Lord Jesus, he writes his law on the minds and hearts of men. What this means is that whereas under the old covenant, the law was regarded as a matter of sheer duty, sheer drudgery. Under the new covenant, the law becomes a matter of delight. A matter of loving, heartfelt devotion. With the emergence of the new covenant, no more is obedience driven by fear and dread of divine judgment, but obedience under the new covenant administered by the Lord Jesus, our high priest, is driven or motivated by filial obedience. In other words, we obey God, not as slaves, slavishly, dreadfully, but we obey him as sons and daughters of his. Why do we obey him? Because we love him. The Apostle John will say in the book of 1 John, we love because he first loved us. And you know something? Never did we know real love until the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let's think of this. Look at creation. The only way you and I know, well, listen, to begin with, creation tells us that there is a God, right? Intuitively, God has impressed it on our conscience and our mind that he exists, his power. But here's the point. Creation, in and of itself, apart from the gospel, leaves us without a clue concerning God's love. Yes, we might have vague notions, but here's the point. It is only in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that the love of God is clearly manifested. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, but God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it is a function of the new covenant to instill in our hearts love for God, whereby we render loving obedience to the word of God. And all of this, my friends, all of this arrangement of the new covenant, where God puts his law in our minds and writes it upon our heart, writes upon our heart, accords with what the Apostle Paul told the Philippian Christians in Philippians 2 verse 13. He says this, 
For it is God who works in you, both to will and do of his good pleasure. You know, the thing about the law, law doesn't teach us to love God. Love only tells us that we must do. Love, law only tells us that we must love God. But love has no, law has no power to enable us to love God. It is the Spirit of God working in our hearts, making God real to us, making his word real to us, that generates real, heartfelt love for God. And that is what the new covenant is about. The new covenant is not about dreadful, servile obedience to God. It is about filial, loving obedience to the God who in mercy and grace has saved us. This also occurs with the prayer of the writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 21, that God would, quote, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will. Here's what he says, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. If you are truly saved, beloved, if you are truly saved, let me say this. Obeying God is not a matter of drudgery. Obeying God is not simply a matter of submitting to him out of dreadful servile fear that he will judge and condemn you to hell. No, no, no. The word of God teaches that under the new covenant, God places his law in our hearts whereby instinctively, but through the work of his grace in our hearts and lives, we are made to render obedience to him, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and do of his good pleasure. And so one of the distinctive features of the new covenant is, that, is this, that obedience to God is not an external mechanical task, but it is a profoundly spiritual internal work, a work that's affected by none other than God himself. Such obedience to God, we would say, is the product of an inside job. We talk about inside job, it's an inside job. Sometimes you hear of robberies, they say it's an inside job. Well, this is a good inside job. God working in the heart, putting his law there so that we willingly, joyfully render obedience to him. You see, one of the shortfalls of a rigid legalistic attempt at obeying God's law is that any such attempted obedience, any such attempted obedience will necessarily lack, as I said earlier, that element of true, genuine love for God. Because law, the very nature of law, is that law gives no ability to love God. Love only demands that we do. But the grace of God instilled in our hearts gives us the disposition, the ability, the empowerment to do what God wills. And guess what? It's not that God treats us as robots, but when God does a divine work in our hearts by his spirit, here's what the psalmist says, your people will be what? Willing in the day of your power. 
We want to serve God, not because we are forced to serve God, not because we are under some kind of dreadful compulsion to serve God. We want to serve God. Why? Because through the operation of the Spirit of God in our hearts, we delight in the law of God. Wasn't that what the psalmist says? I delight to do your law, O God. Your law is where within my heart. Not on the pages of Scripture only, not on tablets of stone, but on tablet of the heart. That's what the writer is saying. As designed by the new covenant then, the law of God, we could say, should be a living, cherished reality in our hearts. Embedded in our hearts and minds, the law should direct our lives. It should Direct us toward honoring God, toward glorifying God for his marvelous saving grace. And this is precisely what occurs when God puts his law into our minds and writes them upon our hearts. And so what that means for you and me as Christians, beloved, is that under the new covenant of grace, the law is not defunct. The law is not irrelevant, as many mistakenly believe. There's a notion abroad that when we get saved, when we come to Christ, we throw out law. No, no, no. The Word of God doesn't teach that. Paul raises this issue and he asks the question, seeing that we are justified by faith, do we then make void the law? Do we scrap it? He says, no, no, no. We establish the law. When we become saved, the law is not some relic of the past for academic theological discussion. God's law is not simply a list of rules to be externally and mechanically obeyed. The point is this, that having been instilled in our hearts by the work of divine grace, the law therefore should be loved, obeyed, and magnified in our lives from day to day. Psalmist says, oh, how I love your law. Do you love God's law? Do you love God's word? Do you cherish God's word? That's a mark of his saving grace in your heart and life. You see, all too often the law is misunderstood and displaced from the life of many a Christian. As Derek Thomas as well noted, he says this quote, too often Christians fall into a trap which suggests that law-keeping is for the Old Testament and grace for the new. But when the author of Hebrews attempts to express the newness of the covenant administration, he resorts to Jeremiah's prophecy that the Lord will write his law on the hearts of his redeemed people. And then Derek Thomas says this, very beautifully put. He says this, our new nature in Christ is fashioned. For obedience. Feature number one of the new covenant administrated by the Lord Jesus is this. Instilled obedience to the word of God. God plants his law in our hearts. He puts it there. He writes it there. He embeds it into our heart and mind and soul so that we have a disposition to honor him, to glorify him in our lives. Well, here's a second feature of the new covenant under Christ, not only instill obedience to the word of God, but here it comes, intimate relationship with God. 
intimate relationship with God. Look at verses 10 and 11, the C part of verse 10 and 11, beginning with verse 10. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, the thing to note, if you know your Old Testament very well, is that although this promise, this promise is not really new because this promise was also in the Old Testament where God promised that Israel would become his son, Israel would be his son. Um, so the promise is given, for example, in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, as well as Leviticus 26, verse 12. But here's the difference. Here's the difference. Under the new covenant, this promise takes on richer and deeper significance. Why? Well, first of all, because of the power of Christ's priestly work on behalf of God's children. In fact, go back to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. We see that in consequence of the incarnation and of Christ assuming his priestly rule toward us, the word of God says, therefore, he's not ashamed to call us brethren. And he says there in fulfillment of scripture, behold, he, the writer of the Hebrews has Christ saying, behold, uh, behold the children whom you have given me. Speaking of you and me, believers in him. Secondly, because of the fact that in putting his law in the minds and hearts of his redeemed people, there is therefore the implication that he transforms their nature. Listen, the very idea, the very fact that God writes his law upon our hearts, puts them in our minds, implies a transformation of nature such that his, as his children, we are disposed to obeying him. Children obey their parents, okay? Ideally, children of God will obey him, is the idea here. Why? Because their natures have been transformed. We read that in verse 11. Here's, here's this relationship with God in consequence of this new covenantal arrangement with Christ as high priest, verse 11, and they shall, teach, they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. The difference between the promise that was given under the old covenant, where the children of Israel would be the sons of God, the difference between that covenant and this new covenant in which we are called the children of God, Here's the essential difference. The new covenant will be with people who have already come to know the Lord in a saving way. Unlike the first covenant which embraced those who were Israelites by birth, the new covenant incorporates those who have come to know the Lord personally. That is why, let me say this, I think I can freely say this without creating any offense. That is why, beloved, any idea that the children of believers are automatically in covenant relationship with the Lord through the seal of baptism. Here's the point I'm making. You're not going to really find that supported in Scripture, not through serious exegesis and hermeneutics. That will not be found in Scripture. 
The fact is, one must personally come to intelligent, informed faith in Christ as Savior, as Lord, in order to be participants in this covenant. That is why God makes a distinction. He says, unlike the first covenant, there will be no need to teach people, and we we need to explain that, know the Lord, because everyone will know me. Now, he's not saying there in in the literal sense that under the new covenant, Christians do not need teaching. But what he's suggesting there is this, that in view of the work of the Spirit of God working in our hearts, there are certain truths that will become, as it were, self-evident in our hearts. Let me give you an example. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. God has sent forth his Spirit into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, the believer, having come to faith in Christ, this is a supernatural work of divine grace, whereby one comes to the understanding, of course, through the word of God, that one is a bona fide child of God. And the Spirit of God does that. The Spirit of God seals it to our hearts. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That never obtained under the old covenant. People came into the covenant simply because they were born Israelites. Under the new covenant, we have to be born again, the word of God says. As someone as well said, God has no spiritual grandchildren. There must be personal knowledge, saving knowledge of Christ. Let me say to even the children growing up in Christian homes, my friends, you need to come to the realization, homeschoolers, here's the point. You need to come to the place where you recognize yourself to be personally culpable before God as a sinner. And you need at some point to intelligently and in an informed manner come to the understanding of the gospel, namely that Christ died for sins and that you must personally place your faith and trust in him as your Savior, as your Lord, if you are to have eternal life. It's not mom's faith, it's not dad's faith, it's not grandma's faith. There must be personal faith in Christ. So this personal knowledge of God, of which our text speaks, is the very essence and the end of a true experience of salvation. If you ask the question, what does it mean to to be saved? It means this, to know God. To know God. Remember our Lord Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. He's praying to his Father. He says, Since you have given him, that is your Son, authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, verse 3, and this is eternal life. What is eternal life? That they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is why you'll notice throughout Scripture, the unsaved, those who have not come to Christ, those who are characterized as unbelievers, according to the Word of God, they are those who do not know God. 
We see that expression in Galatians 4 verse 8, the Gentiles who do not know God. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 8, Christ will appear in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Again, this personal knowledge is to be the passionate pursuit of our lives after we become saved. We are to be growing in our knowledge of him. That This is part of the arrangement of the new covenant. It is something into which we grow, beloved. Just as it was for the Apostle Paul, who in Philippians 3, verses 8 and 10, he says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul was saved many years at the time he was writing these words. And he says, for his sake, I'll suffer the loss of all things, count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. What a wonderful covenant. Instilled obedience to the word of God. That's the work of God in our hearts when we become saved and enter into this new covenant. And then, not only instilled obedience to God, but intimate relationship with God. Now, finally, here's a third feature of this new covenant. And this is wonderful. This is huge. Verse 12, immense forgiveness of sins. Under the new covenant, beloved, we have immense forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, And I will remember their sins no more. That God will be merciful toward the iniquities of his people implies his withholding his wrath, his withholding his judgment, his withholding his fury from us on account of those iniquities. Which attitude of mercy, here's the point, God was under no obligation to exercise because here's the truth, even if God had chosen to unleash his fury on us, his wrath on us for our sins, for our iniquities, he would still be the good, holy, and righteous God he is. So it has to be an act of mercy and grace. In this we see the immensity of God's forgiving mercy. That as the holy and righteous God, the God of inflexible justice, when it comes to judging sin, he can at the same time be merciful and forgiving. Merciful without compromising his justice. And the question is, how do we explain the immensity of such forgiving mercy toward our iniquities, considering that he's a God of holy justice? And my friends, the only explanation there is, is that as our great high priest, as our savior, as our redeemer, Jesus on the cross absorbed in his own body the full wrath and fury of God against him for our sins. The sins that you and I committed, he took the punishment, he took the fall for those sins. The songwriter puts it well. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good. That we might from our sins be freed. Saved by his precious blood. That's immense forgiveness. 
That's what we have under the new covenant, and we see further evidence of the immeasurable nature of God's forgiving mercy toward us in the B part of verse 12, where God declares, he says this, and I will remember their sins no more. God is speaking. God says, I will remember them no more. And this is one of several such expressions which speak of the fullness of the completeness of God's forgiving mercy. In Micah chapter 7, verse 19, for instance, the immensity of God's forgiving grace is expressed as his, what, treading our iniquities underfoot, of his casting all our sins in the depths of the sea. It is described in Isaiah 44, verse 22, as his having blotted out our transgressions like a cloud and our sins like a mist. And here in verse 12, the immensity, the immeasurable nature of God's forgiving mercy is expressed by his declaration, I will remember them no more. Well, what in the world does that mean? Note that in realistic terms, notice what God did not say. Very important. God did not say, I will forget them. It's two different things, you know. He says, I will remember them no more. He never said, I will forget them. The truth is, God is incapable, if we could use that word in connection with God. God cannot forget anything. Why? Because all things, past, present, and future, are ever before him. They never elude his memory. But when he says, I will remember them no more, what he's in fact saying, listen, he's saying this, I will not bring them up. I, will, I choose not to rehearse them. I choose not to bring them back against you, to use them against you, to condemn you, to judge you. And that's a gracious God you and I have. Having forgiven us, beloved, he forgives us completely. Why? Because his covenant pledge that he has made with us is redeemed. As I close, I recall the words of a gospel chorus we used to sing many years ago back in our home country. It says, gone, gone, gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Now my soul is free, and in my heart a song, buried in the deepest sea. Yes, that's good enough for me. I shall live eternally. Praise God, my sins are gone. Yes, under the new covenant administered by Christ, the great high priest, we have rich, wonderful blessings, the blessing of instilled obedience to God, the blessing of intimate relationship with God, and we have the blessing of immense forgiveness of sins. Never had that under, under the old covenant. God in grace comes alongside us and enables us to do what was demanded by the law. He's a gracious God. Such a high priest we have who administers that covenant in our Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to his name and let the church say praise be to our king, our priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.